Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Life Interrupted. I think that's the title of the chapter of the memoirs I'll never write about 2019 and 2020. This novel, Coronavirus, has probably produced more global anxiety, depression, stress, and grief than just about any other single event I can think of right now in my entire lifetime. It has brought so many in the global community together in fear and in isolation, sometimes even from our closest neighbors. Jana's back to chat about how the pandemic has affected her personally. We talk about emotional intelligence, coping strategies, what advice we'd give ourselves in the past if we could, and my personal views on grief as a response to searching for meaning, value, and celebration of those we love. Get ready to call your loved ones and remind them how special they are to you. You might find yourself reaching for the phone after this special session of intimate interactions. Yeah. So talking about that more personalized experience, I wanted to get on the topic of how the pandemic has affected your work itself. Um, it has utterly fucked it up. Uh, <laughs> so that sucks. Basically what happened was, um, before this, I was supposed to be jumping on to a project where I would be traveling internationally. That's so exciting. Yeah. And going into uh, a prison, um, overseas and interviewing people. Um, I was getting hired by a a big, my supervisor and I were being hired by a a big, um, artistic organization. Mm-hmm. And this hit, and now everything is up in the air. Um, we're still talking about going. We're still hoping that they will lift uh, travel restrictions between a couple of countries so that I'm able to travel. And I mean, mm-hmm. fuck, if they have to stick a swab up my nose and test me for COVID-19, I will let them stick a swab in my nose and test me for COVID-19. Right. Um, if I have to get my temperature checked all the time, then I will. Like, I will do it. Um, Mm -hmm. just to, just to be able to do this, um, because that's how much I believe in it. And some people might think that that's maybe not the best thing, but, um, you know, if I've, yeah, anyway, so we're still talking about it. Uh, like we might be able to do it, but, um, if not, I have a backup plan, which is Skype interviews, um, Mm -hmm. which are just as, just as useful, uh, but it doesn't involve me traveling, but that's okay. Um, but overall, like I, for me personally, like it's, it's stalled it a lot. Like all I have are ideas, but I'm not actually getting Mm -hmm. a lot of work done. Mm -hmm. Um, and for some of my colleagues and friends, um, one of my friends is, was doing a, her thesis on the bail system and was supposed to go watch, uh, bail court and court is not in session. (laughs) Um, so she doesn't have anything to do. Um, Mm -hmm. So anybody who's doing in-person interviews, they either have to be on the phone or digital, or you've got to change it completely. Um, So a lot of us are being forced to do things that we didn't want to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you've got to produce work and you've got to produce a thesis and you've got to defend it. So, I mean, you got to do something because after like three years, I think the university just like basically makes you start over. Mm-hmm. Um, or they kick you out. <laughs> right. Depends. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, for me, it's, it's just like, I'm in this limbo right now. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking to my supervisor every month. Um, there's no point in talking to her every day because it's like basically the same shit every day. We're just, we're waiting to see if it gets better. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) So are there any strategies you sort of use to mitigate some of the challenges of working through the pandemic? Like, are there ways you found of continuing to work effectively? Uh, yeah. Like I'm still, I'm still reading. Um, so one of the big components of doing a thesis is writing a, a a literature review. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't need to interview people to write that. Um, Mm -hmm. you're basically, you, search for literature on your topic. And then once you start coming up against articles that you've read before, uh, you're basically done. And then you (laughs) compartmentalize them and problematize them and dissect them and talk about them. Um, so that's a good 30 pages (laughs) that you can knock off your thesis. Um, I've started writing my introduction. Um, but the big components that I need are the data set mm-hmm. and then the analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So you can get a, quite a, quite a fair bit written without having to do any actual research. Mm-hmm. Um, just knowing your topic um, is okay for writing your introduction and your lit review. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ways that I'm mitigating it. Um, another one is just really, communicating with my supervisor and um just being being flexible with this Mm -hmm. because this is something that really nobody i know in our generation has never dealt with before um right and this might be normal from now on so yeah yeah. i think it's it's gonna have to adjust in some ways but there's probably going to be a second wave in the fall oh yeah so it's like not to mention there are going to be bastions of infection that hold out. Like when eventually the fire hits the kindling of the, you know, the incarceration system and the homeless populations, mm-hmm. there's going to be this push hopefully for rights for those folks um, because it will hit those populations and it will spread and there will be outbreaks. It's just a question of when and where. Yeah, exactly. Um, and if those push for rights for those folks doesn't happen, then it's going to keep spreading among those populations. Yeah. And people who do travel or people who don't listen to social distancing rules, and there's always going to be some, mm-hmm. are going to be those points of contact from one homeless community to another. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and when those sorts of things happen, because, you know, people are trying to get to a different shelter that may have space for them when, you know, the ones in the city don't, um, like that type of crap, you're yeah. going to get people migrating and... uh course there's going to be a second wave because we're all connected and when you go to a grocery store that someone has been panhandling in front of and they've gone in to get a sandwich or something um you better hope that grocery store has incredible sanitization protocols and some of them really do yeah um but you know if you're going to like a smaller grocery store that maybe doesn't have the same budget has a smaller profit margin not a big chain yeah and there are a lot of those in vancouver yeah Especially in areas where there's a homeless population like East Van, there's a lot more niche and like smaller style of business there. Yeah. So it's, um, if we don't take care of each other and the most vulnerable groups, the most vulnerable groups are eventually going to spread it back to the less vulnerable groups and we can't stay isolated forever. So we really do need to support people that are most vulnerable for COVID. Totally. Yeah. And like, with my research, like if I'm able to travel and go into a prison, like I said, I absolutely will get tested. Um, but I'd also be going into a prison that wouldn't have any cases of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to make sure that I'm safe and that they're safe. Right. Um, and it God, if I have to do an interview with somebody six feet apart, that's not a big deal. <laughs> right. You know, that's, it's totally fine. Um, I would, I'd wear a biohazard suit. Yeah. Like, Yeah. And I think a lot of people, um, like a lot of researchers feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, like you said, we, we have to look out for each other. And I think our track record of looking out for each other and especially looking after vulnerable people is not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's going to be 
a lot of things that have to change and I hope that we implement those changes and don't mm-hmm. just go, huh, that was weird. And then go back to quote unquote normal. Right. Um, because I don't, I don't think that exists anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's an incredible opportunity and an incredible tragedy all at the same time. Yeah. Like we're finally being given the chance to do something drastic um, because drastic times are called for drastic measures. Yeah. Um, I think we just need to make sure that we do the right drastic things and that we look to an evidence-based model where we look at other countries that are doing things successfully and go that, that is what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I just think we need to like let our pride go and be like, what is it that other countries are doing better than us and fixate on that? Ask why it's working, what authority structures, what structures um, permit that to work in that society and how can we borrow and wholesale borrow yeah. um, so that things that they're doing there could work here. Yeah, exactly. Like you look at New Zealand, they've eradicated it, like the virus uh, almost completely, I think. I don't That's incredible. They've had any new cases in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, of that is. Um... Be, yeah, people could be asymptomatic still, but like, sure. I'm pretty sure that they're one of the first countries that's like, hey, we got it. We we didn't fuck it up. <laughs> and it's it's easy, I think, for folks that are in countries where the infection started very yeah. late in the game. Yeah. Um, but if you look at so an interesting microcosm is to look at Scandinavia. And to compare countries with really drastic measures like Finland with, I don't even know how drastic they are, um, with countries that don't have drastic measures like Sweden. They just let anybody go any, and I was like, this is, what is happening? Sweden. Like I saw a picture of people in restaurants and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw up. Like that makes me so anxious. Yeah. So what they basically did in Sweden to my understanding, and I'm not an expert, so please feel free to Google it because there's a lot of controversial and incorrect information online Yeah, um, as they did impose social distancing rules and they allowed people to enforce it themselves. So if anyone phoned and said, hey, there, there are two people that are closer than six feet at this restaurant, a health inspector, this is my understanding again, would come by and close the restaurant. However, if the people and the restaurant, like maybe I'm not sure what the system was in terms of how quickly it got closed, but the way it was pitched to me online was that there actually were some pretty stringent social distancing regulations in Sweden. However, they have a culture that is communally caring enough or so I've been led to believe um, that they do enforce that for themselves. Yeah. So then the question was, we will sh- like, who are we shutting down? We're shutting down everyone who's not enforcing social distancing. So if you know you could get shut down as a business, that's potentially like the end of your business if you're yeah. shut down for like six months. So you better believe people are taping the ground. People are asking their patrons to sit further apart. They're doing mm-hmm. their best to structurally implement changes that facilitate social distancing. Yeah. And this kind of ties back in with what I was saying about transformative justice around sexual assault and motivation. If we structurally look at structurally look at changes where people committing sexual assault will be caught, it doesn't matter if it's associated with jail time. Yeah. And if you start looking at it that way, the burden of proof drops away from being beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. There's just because you're not talking about taking people's freedom. It's mm-hmm. just like there are so many better ways we can approach structural change in my mind yeah. and, and things that can literally be done in communities. Like, is your festival that people are getting sexually assaulted at very well lit? Yeah. Um, that type of shit. Like, we're talking really easy stuff. Is it lit? Are there fences to prevent people going beyond the lit areas? Yeah. Or, or carrying someone who's inebriated beyond the lit areas? Like those types of changes, you have to start asking, like, what percentage of sexual assault survivors would get reduced? Like it never would have happened if Mm. there wasn't the means to do the thing without getting caught. Mm. That's transformative justice. It's looking Mm. at the and I'm sure I know you know this, but (laughs) it's um, I'm saying this more for the benefit of listeners. Um, It is those structural changes that really transform society. So it does not give rise to crime. Yeah rather than think about oh there are good people and bad people it's like no there there are reasons people have mistaken beliefs there are people yeah 
and people do shitty things to each other, especially yeah. when they have worldviews that are rooted in very binary things, like there are good people and bad people. Well, I must just be a bad person. Therefore, it's yeah. normal for me to do all these horrible things. Um, and telling them you're a monster or you're a horrible person, they'd be like, yeah, I know, right? You better fucking watch out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it doesn't it dis- their identity. Right. It doesn't dissuade people at all. <laughs> you're yeah. not Making helping the problem. It's not just a theory. It's It's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, hell, it's not like there are, you know, experts who have studied this that are, you know, that have degree programs and it's like, maybe we should listen to them. Yeah, yeah. Instead of listening to police officers, because quote unquote, you know, they know what they they actually have experience with. And like, well, they have experience doing something, but I don't know that it's, you know, you know what I mean? It's like you can talk about people enforcing a current system or you can talk to the people who've studied how that system functions and why. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like if you want to redesign um, a large system, something like the bureaucracy of Canada, you're not going to go to a bureaucratic clerk and say, you probably have the best idea of how we should run like an electoral system. Mm -hmm. It's just a person doing their day job and they may have a lot of inside information, but they may not be the expert you think they are. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) They fucking make minimum wage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They don't get paid enough to care to to know what the systems are, how they function. They just exactly, yeah, work on what's in front of them on their desk. And I think it's unreasonable to expect, you know, RCMP officers to do anything different. Like I think we hold people sometimes in certain key emotionally charged fields, like medicine mm-hmm. and law, to egregious and unreasonable standards. Yeah, we shouldn't expect anyone to work for free because it's quote unquote the right thing. Yeah, and quite frankly. I think the medical staff should be getting different danger pay right now than they normally would be getting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like what they're doing is sure in the scope of their work and they've been being paid in a large amount for a lot of the physicians, maybe not the nurses, um, cause nurses <laughs> do not make anywhere near what physicians make. No, it is the highest paying undergraduate job in Canada. I believe to be a yeah. registered, um, practical nurse is yeah. that it registered practical rpms yeah uh, i think so yeah registered some kind of nurse um i'm thinking of rns aren't i because rpms are registered psychological nurses yeah 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 that's why something was going off in my brain i was like this does not sound right what is wrong um yeah um versus like lpns which are the licensed practical nurses i believe it's only two mm-hmm. years but the the point is like regardless of how long you train for a thing which is part of it we should really think about like how much folks are being paid and like we were saying in one of our previous podcasts where we were talking about you know um a documentary i think you'd mentioned um that sort of made the made the claim like are we essential workers or sacrificial and when someone's getting minimum wage less than the stimulus package that canadians who are fired due to covid are getting paid um and the government's remedied that now there's a top up to 500 dollars more a month than serb if you're in um, an essential service job making less than serb Oh, good. Yeah, it's fantastic, actually. The response was really quick. Um, Not quick enough, I'm sure, for those folks, but that's excellent. So if you make minimum wage, you're now making $2,500 a month because you're an essential worker making minimum wage. Good. Because they deserve to make more than I would make if I'm fired based on COVID or like laid off, which I actually was laid off, but I have some work coming up. So I'm probably not going to be able to claim if they pay me too much, um, which is fine. I don't care. I mean, there are seven periods and we can only claim the benefit for four of them. And I've already been working for two. So I think this will just be my third period that I've somehow managed to cobble income together above the thousand dollar threshold. And then, yeah. Then I'll just collect CERB, assuming I don't get hired for something. But who knows? I'm resourceful. I may not collect CERB after all. Yeah. Yeah. But what were we talking about? We have like the coolest conversations and I'm (laughs) so not focused in my attentions. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD as a kid and it's like... I will hyper focus on a thing to the point where people are like, wow, like you seem unhealthily fixated on this thing. And I'm like, (laughs) it's not unhealthy. I'm just like, I don't know whether neurodivergent is the right word, um, but my brain is not the same as everyone considers normal. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. I got diagnosed with it as an adult, but uh, I don't hyper fixate. It means I have the intent attention span of a carrot. Oh my Um, goodness. 
Yeah, I just like I'm like, what was that? What was that noise? What was that? TV's too loud. What's happening? And it takes me, um, oh, so I don't know, hard. three days to read an article. Oh my god! So reading yeah. is so hard for me. During school, I was stressed and pressured, and I had strategies, and I would really hyper focus. And if I could get to a hyper focusing place, I could sit down, planning for no distractions, and just bang out thirty pages of reading out yeah. of a textbook. Now it's like, do you want to read for fun? I'm like, oh, just give me an audiobook. Yeah, same. Yeah. I just, I can't spend the time and attention. The emotional energy is just too much with all the things going on. Yeah. I have to find like the exact right, like, um, like soundscape or music or whatever. And then like, yes. I'll be like, I'll be like, nobody talked to me. I'm almost there. I'm almost focused. So I will do I can the feel same. feel it happening. I need like ambient music that's not too loud and not too intense and not too varied. Yeah. But that's interesting enough that if I'm feeling aggravatedly bored, which is a hard thing to describe to people that don't have it. Yeah. It's like bored, but not like bored in the normal way. It's like there's a sense of almost anger or frustration to the boredom. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so good to talk about someone else who has these experiences. <laughs> yeah. But I call it's like, it rage-inducing boredom. Yeah. yeah. It's like if I'm focused on a task and I'm like struggling to keep focused, I'm just like twitchily irritated about it. Yeah. But um, Godspeed You Black Emperor has been pretty good for me because I can task switch and just like listen to the music for a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. But the music is so slow and it's building in progression that I'll get bored of the music, even though it's different and interesting. Yeah. So I'll only come back to the music every few minutes and mm -hmm. it will have built and I'll like listen to a crescendo and then go back to work. And it's like, if it's quiet enough, it doesn't steal my attention, but it's enough to hold my attention on the activity. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it has to be quiet enough. It has to be exactly the right kind of music. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Strategies. Oh. So speaking of ADHD, mm. <laughs> how has your relationship supported you through the pandemic? Um, I'd say pretty, pretty positively. Like I know, I know people who have, because they're in close quarters with their partners have started fighting more, but like, mm. um, that really hasn't happened for, for my husband and I, um, right. You know, like I, I usually, I do my work in like the bedroom and then he's in the living room, like playing video games or whatever. So, uh, we have the chance to be in separate spaces. Oh, that's such a luxury. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's a serious, serious privilege that we have. I mean, we only have a one bedroom apartment, but you know, but I'm lucky enough to have a desk in here. Um, mm. and then like, we'll, we'll eat dinner together or like we'll watch a movie or something like that. So, you know, it's. It's good. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. Also, yeah. I think people maybe underestimate or forget about just how incredibly value, valuable warmth and human connection are. Yeah. And like as much as being shut in with a partner can be disastrous if that, if you have dysfunctional patterns of behavior or abusive patterns of behavior, mm -hmm. um, if you're working through mental health issues and sometimes your issues are incompatible where one person's reaction to anxiety is another person's trigger. Like there are so many situations that are just really unhappy right now. And also yeah. if you have a functional enough relationship and you can manage it, being able to lie next to someone or cuddle or just have warmth and touch is a really big deal for extroverts who do not have that luxury. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I was by myself during this, I would be okay. Um, mm -hmm. but as an introvert. Yeah. But having somebody here, you know, I like, I feel like I'm like, I, I almost describe myself as like a cat. Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, pet me with your eyes, please. Like, don't, I'm not, uh, I've never been a super big hugger or anything mm. like that. Um, but you know, having somebody here that I can like, if I get overwhelmed reading something or watching something or whatever, I can go out and just like sit with my husband and give him a hug. And mm. it's really, uh, it's really nice and it's really almost cathartic to be able to have that. Yeah, you really are like a cat. You're like, pet me, but only on my terms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. I remember when I went to theater school, like everyone was hugging and I was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I don't like this. All extroverts and Yana. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I, you know, I got used to it and then I like went out of acting and then going back, sometimes I'll go, like I would go to like acting actor parties or shit and people would be like, Oh, I want to hug. And I'm like, mm. Oh no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. I just go, okay. And, you know, ease back into it but yeah it's definitely a switch i can flip for sure yeah it's um i've heard that from other extroverts that uh they can put in the focused emotional energy to be an extrovert and like to to practice socializing in a way that feels socially normative yeah but it costs them emotional energy and then they go home and they're like fuck i'm so done with people oh yeah i like like i like going to parties but i also like leaving parties <laughs> at a reasonable hour like a big fan of that yeah yeah and then you have as your partner an extrovert no oh that's actually really helpful oh, well it, i think i think he's a mixture of both mm -hmm. um yeah so speaking about supportive things um what motivates you to keep working during the pandemic when everything about the correction system and the world might feel really depressing sometimes? Um, I think for, for me, it's like, it's really just, it, it's something I, I care about so deeply. I can't just let it go. Mm -hmm. um like it's i'm it, it's like it's a passion for me like i i i love helping people and amplifying people's voices um which is different than speaking for them which has mm -hmm. been a big lesson that i've had to learn because i have spoken for people before and mm -hmm. that is not the right thing for me to be doing especially as an academic mm -hmm. um i think i've learned that a lot of my job is to um, sit down and support and shut the hell up unless I'm absolutely needed. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, for me, it's just because this is happening and because I'm watching this happen in real time and it's something that's connected with my research and it's something that, you know, I'm very personally connected to the topic of prisoners justice. Like my, my dad was in jail when I was a kid um, I know the impacts that incarceration has on families. Mm. Um, I have friends who are who are in the system currently. Um, mm. So I feel like if I didn't, if I wasn't motivated to do this work or wasn't doing this work, um, it would be irresponsible on my part. And that's just me personally. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I feel. So, and there's also, there's time pressure. I mean, for me to, to produce a thesis, it has to mm -hmm. be done within two years. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, and just, you know, I always, no matter how frustrated I get with my work, um, I always come back to why am I here and why do I love to do what I do? Mm -hmm. And if I can answer those questions, then I can work today. That's good. At least you have strategies and you're yeah. able to like work through that. Yeah. I mean, and there's some days where I'm like, you know what? I've read three articles that have been super depressing. I'm done for today and that's mm -hmm. it. Um, and that's okay. You know, you don't have to be, we don't have to be on all the time. Yeah. And I don't think there's a call for us to do more than we can if we're luxury, luxurious enough to be at home. Exactly. Like if we have the space and we have the resources, we don't need to overspend ourselves. We can close Facebook and the news and not look today. That's okay. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if the news is extremely anxiety inducing for you, it's worth asking yourself, like, how is this activity helping me if it's actually also destroying a lot of my mental wellness? Yeah. Yeah. And like, to what extent, if you're planning on being isolated for weeks, um, could you just be isolated and not really look at the news and try and talk to people specifically and let them know, like, this is a source of anxiety for me and I'd rather just keep it to like fun and light. Yeah. Yeah. You're allowed to ask for those things. It's not irresponsible to be uninformed. Totally. 
And if you really feel the need to check in and you really feel the need to know, um, you can also set a schedule. Like you're only allowed to look once a week or once a day. Yeah. Um, you'll look once a week before you go out to do your grocery shopping. Yeah. Um, you know, like times when it makes sense, when you're already going to be engaging with the pandemic and already be anxious about it. Yeah. 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 So speaking about anxiety and pandemics, how has that affected your relationship? The reverse of the question before. Um, I think, I mean, I, I don't think that it has, I think if anything, it's, it's really brought us closer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we, you know, we, my husband and I already have a, a really good relationship. Um, like we're, we're best friends. I know like every couple says that, but, um, like, <laughs> he's legit, like my buddy, like, um, great. and he's my husband. Um, so I get the best of both worlds. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we have, uh, we're all, we're really honest with each other and we just, you know, we have a lot of fun, but we can also have really serious discussions. Um, and both of us have like not normal brains. So there's always been this, uh, real honesty in our house where we can talk openly about anxiety. Like we can be upset in front of each other. We can be angry, like, and it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's space for that and we can work through it together. So, um, I don't know. We've been cooped up in the same apartment for like two months now and you know, nothing bad's happened yet. So. Yay. Yeah. I, that's a, I mean, that's a huge win. So what advice do you wish you had at the start of the pandemic that you feel like you know today? Um, I wish, uh, Ooh. Oh, that's a really hard question. Um, I wish that I had known to maybe take better care of myself Mm. Um, because you know like grad school can really run you absolutely ragged Um, and I know for me this last semester my winter semester so from uh, January to uh, I think March was the day before the school shut down um, March 13th um, I was like working to the point of exhaustion Um, and really just like psychologically fucking myself up and having really horrible anxiety dreams. So, and you know, they, they talk about self-care in like graduate seminars, but like (laughs) grad school is not a place that fosters that kind of attitude, despite how much they talk about it. Um, it is hyper rigid. Um, like I read a book a week for three months. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I think I read like, I read like seven books in three months, something wild like that. That's a lot. Because I had to. And because if you didn't read before the seminar and you were called upon, um, then you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then you get called out on it. So yeah, I just, God, I wish I just known that it's okay to take care of yourself And it's okay to be like, no, I don't want to fucking do this right now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's okay to say no to things. Uh, And that's something that I'm like super embracing right now. Um, Some things have come along where it's like, do you want to do this? And I'm like, no, I don't. I don't have the energy to do that right now. Um, That sounds like really good self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. So... And this is an even harder question than the last one, but it'll probably be the last question I ask. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can imagine future you um, at the end of this pandemic, whether that's two years and we've got a vaccination program going or mm-hmm. whether it's um, 10 years and we've just learned to live with this as a seasonal flu, except it'll be seasonal Corona. Yeah. Um, which will be significantly less devastating. Like, I think people lose it when they think about it being a seasonal thing, but I'm like, flu kills every year. Corona will kill every year. And 
we will have more ventilators and we will have more treatments. Like um, there's a dialysis related centrifuge um, treatment that was just pioneered in Canada. Yeah, that I saw that. Takes, yeah, it's so exciting. That takes yeah. people who are really, really likely to die and makes them very likely to live. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, we just have all these different interventions that we're going to learn. Um, and it's not great. No one loves that it's a thing, but we will develop some seasonal immunity and the severity will likely get less for those reinfected in a couple years or in a year. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it will like, if that ends up being what it looks like, um, where it has to be seasonal, mm-hmm. there will come a time post pandemic when it is no longer a novel virus, where it's one that our immune systems are much more capable of recognizing. And yeah. it's un- inconceivable to me that we won't have some sort of booster vaccine, even if it's not a proper vaccine, because coronavirus vaccines are very hard to make. Yeah, um, totally. not as Not as hard as flu vaccines. Yeah. Um, but but they are harder to make than other vaccines. Um, so what advice would future you likely give you today if you can put yourself in the frame of mind of what it would be like at the end of the pandemic? Uh, I think it would be... I keep coming back to just take care of you and take care of the people around you, whether that be... Mm-hmm. Um, like physically helping out with stuff like you know buying people groceries or just mm-hmm. emotionally helping people um like i i like i'm a teaching assistant um and i the, some of my students have very real um uh problems and very unique problems that they've emailed me about or like come to me in confidence during office hours to talk about them and I think, you know, having the privilege to teach people and and working with students has taught me that um, we we need to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's so evident right now, um, mm-hmm. especially in isolation. Um, so yeah, I think it would just be take care of me and take care of the people around me when mm-hmm. I can. Um, and if it's too much, maybe direct those people to resources where someone can take care of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't always have to be you. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing I would add is this idea of have the hard conversations. It may yeah. seem like the wrong time, um, but have the, have the hard conversations and look into conversational frameworks Mm-hmm. Now is a great time to build your carer, your emotional intelligence, your ability to have those conversations. Yes. So look up frameworks like um, radar is one of the many that you can use for relationships, which is just a regular easy, medium and hard conversation check in. You basically talk about all the things you want to talk about first, and then you go into talking about each of the things. And uh, there's a whole review a review um that happens first so there's i guess we could just talk about what it stands for which is review and then you talk about your agenda items then you have your discussion um then you talk about your action steps moving forward and then you reconnect Mm -hmm. so that's one method of having intimate relationship check-ins and it's i found it's incredibly successful yeah um but it doesn't matter what you're using it just matters that you have a thing that you're using And the reason I bring this up is because you should be telling people you love them, like celebrate the people that matter to you and remind them of why they matter. Yes. And if you're worried for people like your parents, that's doubly important. Yeah. You don't need to break down in tears necessarily or communicate to them that you're worried about them. But older people have a lot of experience with things like grief And Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, they're going to be the one reassuring you. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would suggest um, is, yeah, that idea of just telling people that you love them, having the hard conversations. And for me, I had never really parsed grief as a quest for meaning. But when I looked at Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication needs inventory, grief is listed as a sub need of meaning Mm -hmm. of purpose and 
it resonated so strongly for me as a healthy way of parsing and processing grief that if you think about grief as a quest for meaning, it's sort of like the first time you get the ability to parse jealousy into subcategories. All of a sudden, this big cloud of emotion that you don't seem to be able to manage becomes manageable. Yeah, yeah. So if you're thinking about jealousy as exclusion or possessiveness or insecurity or envy you can look at those four things and say which one resonates for me the most which one's alive in me right now yeah yeah Um, and that can really help you parse through jealousy and get to the bottom of like what needs are not being met and then you can make requests of your partners and be like hey i'm experiencing some pretty intense insecurity right now that's not on you and also here are the ways that you could support me best in how you choose to do that in future Mm-hmm. And here are the needs that I'm feeling are not getting met. Maybe it's reassurance. Maybe I'm terrified that, you know, this is some sort of harbinger of the end of our relationship that maybe you don't love me when you're flirting with the server or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And if your partner's like, no, I totally love you. Um, trust them to be the expert of their experience. And, you know, yeah. if you can't trust them to be honest with you, that's a bigger problem that's worth investigating and even being able to share that and yeah i'm not giving out couples counseling right now but basically um think about those things so just like jealousy is easy to sort of well i shouldn't say easy i should not say easy do not make that mistake um just because jealousy can be parsed apart like that um Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's the only emotion and you can do the same thing with grief you can start looking at like meaning and purpose like we get to experience each other for such short periods of time. Yeah. And it's easy to feel wronged and to have our sense of fairness upset that someone was taken from us. Yeah. Yeah. But you can also reframe that as a celebration of the life you got to experience. And it's easier said than done, just like with jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. Big feels are big feels. Yeah. That's yeah. The, uh, that part, the, the shortness of, how long we get to experience each other is something that I, I was like, yeah, I know. But, um, about 10 years ago, I lost, uh, one, one of my best friends to, uh, an overdose. Um, and then it, that's when it really hit me. Um, how little time we have with each other and how much of that time we don't use telling people, um, I love you. Yeah. Yeah. And so ever since then, like, I mean, even like I've got people in my graduate cohort that I've become quite close with and every day we're like, I love you. Like before we go to bed, that's our, our group sign off. That's cute. I like so, that. Yeah. Um, it costs nothing to tell people how much you care about them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's scary, but I mean, you know, most of the time people are going to tell you that they love you too. Yeah. Yeah. And if they don't, that's okay as well. That's okay too. That's their journey. And they're allowed to, they're allowed to have that. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I would just encourage folks to see grief as uh, a search for meaning and a search for purpose, both like what did it all mean and what did it all matter for that person to have been alive and to have spent their life um, giving of themselves the way they did. And then also, what does it mean for you now moving forward in your life without them? Yeah. Like you had this great amount of time and it's not that you wasted it. It's not that you you know, should have done this or that, or could have spent more time with, you made the best decisions you could with what you knew at the time. And unfortunately in doing so all of the time you get with this wonderful person, all that time has been used up, but you did spend some of that time making the best of that time, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And no one's perfect. No one's going to spend all of their time with the people they care most about. Um, you know, in the best conceivable way. No one's going to have relationships that don't have fights. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, in my mind, worth thinking about the meaning of the people in your life right now and then communicating that to them. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure that if one of you does end up in the very unlikely chance that one of you does die of COVID, which is very unlikely, mm-hmm. that you have 
been able to be at peace with like your social network and communicating the value, the enormous value that some of those people hold for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, um, I value you immensely, Yana. I really appreciate our conversations. Me too. I value you too. And I'm so glad that we get the chance to talk like this. It's really, it's really awesome. (laughs) I'm constantly inspired by your passion. Um, thank you. Yeah. It's just the way that you approach how meaningful and important this work is. Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, it's, it's inspirational enough that I, you had me for a second considering like, what would it look like if I did a master's in criminology and actually tried to do like (laughs) actually implementing some of these transformative justice structures. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Stay out of the academic world, Victor, (laughs) stay out of the academic world. (laughs) It's like the second I stopped being a lay practitioner of this stuff is like almost the second it all goes to hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, um, it just, it all gets relegated to academia, which isn't a relegation exactly, but it changes the way, the manner in which you can actually work and implement these things. Definitely. Definitely. All of a sudden I have to be concerned with things like, um, proper procedure around making sure that the people I'm engaging with understand exactly what niche I'm fixed into. Mm -hmm. Whereas as a lay practitioner, I have a wide range of things I can do provided I'm really clear about folks that what I'm offering is not legal advice, that it's not professional counseling. Yeah. um, Yeah. And encouraging folks to get both of those things. Mm -hmm. Boy, do people not like it when you tell them that all of the rights that a person has in society still keep going during a transformative justice process. Yep. No, you cannot say that this person has to admit guilt and go be jailed and potentially sexually assaulted in prison. No, that's not part of this process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, yeah, he's, he's suing for defamation. It's garbage. And nothing you or I say or do is going to take that right away. So just accept that this is a thing that's happening. Yeah. And hopefully if the process goes well enough, that's maybe a thing that will be de-escalated. But it's like, you aren't going to change the super powerful structures that were implemented by people in power. Yeah. All you can do is try and build alternative structures that may release some tensions. And interestingly, talking about alternative dispute resolution or ADR, um, India has a really cool kind of alternative dispute um, resolution that's unique to them, apparently. Oh. I was reading up on Wikipedia and I was like, how do I know so little about my heritage? Um, colonialism is the easy answer to that one. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> there's this really cool system. I believe it's called Bharat. Um, and I need to, to look it up further. As I said, it's not coming from an authentic place right now. It's coming from a research place. So please mm-hmm. see it through that lens. Not like I'm an expert because I'm Indian or anything like that. Um, but it's this super neat ADR that accompanies all of their criminal justice. So any court you go to in India, Um, My understanding right now from the Wikipedia I was reading, so again, grain of salt, um, is that there's always a corresponding Bharat that functions alongside of it. So it's sort of like a mediation slash conciliation service that's like if at any point all the parties want to talk and they don't want to have lawyers involved exactly and they just want to kind of try and hash it out, so long as all the partners want to, they have access to this ADR system where they can go and talk. And what? it it helps make up for long court times, like long waits, expensiveness mm-hmm. of having access to legal advice and courts. Um, and it's a much cheaper mediation service that has the power to make legally binding agreements between the two parties such that they can essentially like um, agree to settle out of court. Wow. Yeah. So you can literally just take some percentage of, of stuff that could be settled and maybe people want to play that game and do more court stuff and they Mm -hmm. do until they get sick of it or they run out of money and then they go, okay, now I'm ready to come to the table and Mm -hmm. they all sit down and they'd finish it in mediation, but it can end court at any time. So long as all parties agree to do so. Wow. Like that's. Why is that not a thing with every court system? Oh, that's a I million mean, dollar question. Right? Because think about it's it's literally probably a billion dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> like, think yeah. about think about the amount in legal bills that could be 
saved and stay in people's pockets to spend in the economy. Yeah. It would be an, an economic stimulus unto itself. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Not to mention all the other things about like people who may have ended up in jail that could have done restorative justice type stuff. Yeah. You know, to be like, oh, by the way, this person that stole something from you actually wants to sit down and talk. And maybe the person who feels super wronged is like, well, of course they want to sit down and talk. They know that I've kind of got them on this. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they, they are willing to sit down eventually when they're like, wow, it's really expensive holding this person to be responsible. They sit down and talk about it. And the person's like, actually seems genuinely apologetic and is willing to do all this work as trade to sort of pay it back. It's like, yeah, these reparations might actually help me more as the survivor of a crime than watching them rot in prison. Mm hmm. And mm -hmm. suddenly it becomes, yeah, this makes way more sense. Now the state isn't paying to incarcerate someone. The person who's being incarcerated isn't being harmed by the state. And the person who was harmed to begin with is actually seeing more reparation than they would in our current system. Yeah. So it's like restorative justice can work really well, but we have to give opportunities for it. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to create like a catch-all mediation service that has the power if both people sign binding agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make that service, one, informed by legal counsel, and mm -hmm. two, extremely cheap and accessible, if not funded by the state. Totally. Yeah. So that there's no cost. So when people are out of money, they can be like, hey, I'm a yes to the service if the other person's a yes to the service. And maybe mediation goes nowhere and they both mm -hmm. go, fuck it, this is garbage. Let's go back to court. But yeah. some percentage of people will settle. Yeah. Yeah. With um, And I've seen benefits of that personally. I was suing a former boss at one point because he had given me a piece of paper agreeing to a bonus and then had reneged on it and wasn't willing to give it to me. Yeah. And that relationship had been so abusive, like down to him screaming and yelling as a larger dude in a, in a confined space where I couldn't get to the exit kind of thing wow. to him throwing things, punching walls. It was an abusive relationship that I was in that I never should have been in by which I mean employment relationship, but as a relationship anarchist, I don't see a distinction mm -hmm. um, other than your employment relationships are not usually people you choose. Yeah. And so people who would normally never be in relationship are suddenly forced into this weird situation where they're all in the same workplace trying to figure out how to work together. Wow. I think that's why relationships in workplaces are so challenging. But anyways, so this person was abusive and was my boss and it was horrible. Um, and then when they reneged on the contractual agreement, I was like, no, nah, I'm a nope to that. Fuck you. I'm mm -hmm. so upset about the way you've treated me. I'm going to hold you to this because you've written it down and signed it. And I was smart enough to keep the original signed in ink. Hmm. So I had the original document signed in ink. He had a copy and I had copies of it, so I sued him for it, and it took a very long time. We went through the um, the Labor Standards branch that handles um, the Labor Standards Act of BC, and we went to the tribunal there and tried to get that to settle. It did not settle. Hmm. Um, and it didn't settle because they didn't have the authority, because the conditions of the contract hadn't been fulfilled yet. Um, it was the bonus was contingent on a property selling. And then when it did sell, I was like, cool, all the conditions have been met, but I've gone past the six month um, duration that the labor standards branch could action. So we actually went to small claims court and there was the option to mediate. You're required to go in to mediate first, mm -hmm. um, by which I mean, not mediation at all. It's something totally different where a judge gives you like a pretrial kind of like conference where if you do want to settle, you can talk about it before you actually go to court. Um, and that's just, that's just cause it was small claims. So we had a judge do a video conference with us and I was able to be like, I had gone and sought legal counsel beforehand. And the legal counsel was like, listen in like in these matters, if a person's actually going to be going bankrupt or something like that, which he's probably not, but let's just say he, he might be, um, you're not going to see anything really. And if you are going to see something, it's because he decides to pay you. Even if you get a court order saying he should pay you this contractually, you've then got to look into enforcing it. You're looking at more time, more money and more challenge. Mm -hmm. And you should look at your stress level and like what that's going to cost you. And I was like, fuck. So he was like, even though it's really hard and a bitter pill to swallow, consider settling. If he offers you anything, you should take it. And I was like, not even half. And he was like, if he offers anything, my personal feeling is you should take it. And mm. I was like, fuck. So when we went into the pretrial um, conference or whatever it was, um, the judge asked if either of us were willing to settle. And I said, yes. And he said, no. Um, and the judge was like, I think we should talk about that. 
So we had a conversation and we ended up settling out of court. Huh. I ended up getting half of what he had written on paper, which was like two thirds of what he actually owed me. Oof. But I got something and the procedure ended and there was an acknowledgement that what he had done was wronged me in some way. Mm-hmm. So ultimately I got the closure I wanted and he was forced to submit to a greater authority and admit he was wrong, which was really what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Even though the money definitely made it easier and was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I only got through it because I had the support of a very loving and accepting partner who was willing to help me with paralegal type stuff um, because I couldn't handle the stress of it. It was, it was too wrapped up in abuse. It's the same reason why the criminal justice system is not accessible to rape survivors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a much less severe version of that. I'm not in any way trying to equate the two, but it's the same sort of problem where like victims don't feel like they can access the resources to pursue justice. Yeah. That was more what I was talking about. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So just mediation and support, like the way that we support and focus victim outcomes in these, instead of focusing um, strictly on the state outcome. Yeah. Because it feels like that's what our current system does. Again, I'm sure you know all these things because you've literally studied it for so many years. (laughs) But it can be useful to say it out loud for folks listening. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Just so I don't seem like I'm mansplaining your own degree to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with all that mansplaining out of the way, I feel like that was the last question. (laughs) So thank you so much for another awesome session. I really appreciate the time and patience that you've had. Oh, thank you. This was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Me too. Awesome. And we're out. So... I'm going to make an effort to try and cut the third session into a third and fourth session because it's so long. So I want to record a couple minutes of me introing you again, if that Mm -hmm. works. Sure. (laughs) And then I'm just going to put it in front of the other session. So welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Jana Skorstengard, a criminology researcher and master's candidate at the University of Ottawa, who is also an honors graduate in criminology. Um, that was from Kwantlen, right? Yes. Well, welcome, Yana. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about COVID and all of the ways that it impacts um, us as people. Thank you for having me. That's probably fine. That's probably all I need. Cool. And then I will just try and figure out where I'm going to cut all that together, but that's mm-hmm. a later problem. Great. Well, my bladder is about to burst, um, so <laughs> I should probably go and take care of myself. Okay. Um, but thank you so much for all of the time and all of the effort you put into even just trying to share this stuff. Oh, I mean, this is I I love I love my job. I love what I do. So it's um, anytime I get to talk about it is uh, is awesome. <laughs> Great. I am so passionate about learning about how things are changing and more importantly than how they're actually changing, Mm -hmm. how people are pushing for them to change so that when people confront me in like a lecture or something, when I'm talking about transformative justice and they're like, but this is unreasonable because I'm like, cool. Like I hear that and I understand where that's coming from. Here's what one of my friends has said, who's a researcher. And like, here are some links to things you might want to look at, like to be able to actually empower people with resources in those conversations rather than be, you know, a dude at the front of the room being like, you're wrong. Yeah. Um, Because most of the people asking those questions are going to be femmes or people of color. Um, Okay. Probably not people of color because people of color are rarely like, we need to punish people more with prison. Um, But (laughs) I'm going to be occupying a masculine presenting place, even though I don't identify as a dude or a man Mm -hmm. um when people look at me and they see a beard even if i'm wearing lipstick or nail polish they see a dude or a man and Mm -hmm. that's cool um Mm -hmm. especially if they've been harmed by a dude or a man yeah you know like there's so much power that's being held by me in the microphone effect being at the front of the room i do not want to be punching down because i don't like someone someone's ideas yes yeah so i do my best to just empower people with strategies and resources and like question like i'd invite you to think about it more like this or like what do you think about this sort of an idea or like do you think some percentage of the prison population might fall into this classification like i really try and just 
help people gently like reframe how they're looking at the problem rather than being like you're wrong and like you should feel bad and you are bad and like yeah Yeah. you know because like people get enough of that bullshit already and it's just like it's ironically me trying to embody the principles that are really important to me in reframing and reshaping rather than taking a punitive approach. So it kind of falls into line with practicing what I preach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm always successful at it. <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> that I make a genuine concerted effort um, to do so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, thanks again. It's been really wonderful chatting with all the stuff about you. And I look forward to when we have time to do the next one. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. All right. Well, go tell your husband how important he is and I will. Uh, <laughs> and that I love you both and care oh, about you both and hope you. that you're both you. well. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, stay well, stay healthy, and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Okay. okay. See ya. Bye. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.